The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. For the next half hour, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today I'm visiting with Joshua Young the founder and portfolio manager of Young Capital Management. Previously, Josh served as an analyst at a multi-billion dollar single-family office in Los Angeles. Prior to that, he was an investment analyst at Triton Pacific Capital Partners. He was also a corporate strategy consultant at Mercer Management Consulting and Diamond Cluster. He holds a BA in economics from the University of Chicago, and Josh is one of the fund managers I see regularly when I attend corporate presentations hosted by 49 North in downtown Los Angeles. I thought it was about time I invited him to chat with us on the Ellis Martin Report. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you. You've been published and interviewed recently with regard to your expertise and interest in oil and gas. Now, you and I were talking the other day and I asked you why you love oil and gas so much. Of course, you have an extensive background in it, and that's one reason to love it, correct? The other reason is from inception, these things tend to turn around really fast as far as producing revenue. Yeah, well, I'd say there's a few things. So first of all, I think it's a really good idea to invest in sectors and in spaces where there is a good macroeconomic environment and where you have great tailwinds. And I think with both natural gas and oil, there are substantial tailwinds. With natural gas, it's trading at a almost decade low currently. And with oil, there's a lot of geopolitical risk and the supply and demand are very tight. So if there's any sort of geopolitical event that affects the supply of oil, uh, you could see a supply shock and you could see the price increase dramatically. So just from a macro perspective, it's very interesting. From a value perspective, there aren't that many value investors in the oil and gas investing business. There are many people who will invest based on growth or growth as a reasonable price or will invest based on resource in place or are trying to get exposure to the commodity. But there aren't that many people who take value methodology of the sort that Joel Greenblatt or Warren Buffett, primarily more like Joel Greenblatt with special situations, really sort of looking for deep value, looking for assets that are not appreciated by the market, looking for strong balance sheets and large margins of safety, and not necessarily believing too much in growth stories that are told by management or by sell-side research analysts or by promotional owners of, of the stock. Um, and then finally, like you said, specifically why I would invest in oil and gas over mining projects, all things being equal, I think there's less risk in an oil project than there is in a mining project in the sense that you drill a well and you see how much oil you produce. You drill a hole for a mine and you have one data point for the mine. If you produce the oil, you get cash, you get revenue, you get cash flow, you can get paid back on your investment. The time from deploying the capital to getting paid back for the capital you've deployed is much shorter. It's much shorter cycle time. And so you have to risk less capital in order to get payback. 
the returns might not be as high. So if you spend $20 million buying a prospect and delineating a mine, you could end up generating substantial returns. You could end up with a billion dollar mine and sell and get a great return on your invested capital. But the risk on the first dollar, I think, is greater in the mining industry than it is in the oil and gas industry because you're going to get that first dollar paid back sooner and you can take those dollars that you've invested and invest them in other projects. So it's a lower risk, possibly lower return, but certainly lower risk way to deploy capital. And as a value investor, I'm very interested in not losing money. That's sort of my first priority. And getting your money back soon and getting your money back with a higher probability is one way to not lose money. When the market is this cheap, and I'm talking about the price of natural gas, what's the motivation for a lot of these exploration companies to do business? There isn't very much of one. And the companies that are doing business often are doing it in a value-destroying way. So ironically, the companies that are going to explore for natural gas and that are drilling for it to develop it right now are losing money, and some of them are losing huge amounts of money. I think the value in natural gas right now is holding reserves, is holding production, and being able to generate cash flow from it, but not deploying huge amounts of capital expenditure in order to increase your production currently. I think it, it doesn't make any sense to try to increase your natural gas production at $2 gas because no matter where you are in the U.S., you're losing money if you're drilling new gas wells. And there are companies that say otherwise. Generally, their competitors will say that they're lying. Uh, you know, it's a very interesting process going and meeting with companies because you know company A and company B may have adjacent properties that have identical rock characteristics. And and their wells have identical production characteristics and they cost the same to develop. And one company will say, we've stopped drilling here because it's totally uneconomic. Another company will have in their presentation that they're generating 20 or 30% rates of return. Obviously, one of them is wrong. And generally speaking, the one that's wrong is the company that's claiming higher returns from basically the same wells. I think the way to do it is to come in and pay a low price to get the natural gas resource, but not to go and deploy huge amounts of capital developing that resource now. I think you hold the resource as an option, and when natural gas prices recover, then you go and develop it. And you're investing in some of these companies, right? I am, yeah. Well, how are you making money, or how are you going to make money? So one way I'm making money and I think it's a, a little bit of a different strategy than many investors are, are taking right now. And it seems to be working. It hasn't worked perfectly, but it's working. And I think it'll work very well over the short to medium term, actually, is there are companies that are drilling for natural gas and are also getting oil or natural gas liquids as byproducts. And specifically finding companies that are rapidly growing their natural gas production and their oil and natural gas liquids production, I think is a good way to get natural gas exposure and to make money in the process. How volatile are these stocks? Are you a trader or are you in for the long term or a little bit of everything? I'm generally very long term oriented, but given the extreme volatility of these stocks, there's more return available if I'm somewhat flexible in terms of trading and not just buying stocks and closing my eyes and holding my breath and waiting until the, the stocks recover. So if I know that a company is drilling a, a series of wells and I don't think that the wells are going to work very well, even if the company is undervalued or if I, I don't like an acquisition that they're doing, even if the company is undervalued, given the large number of companies that are available in the market that are trading at large discounts to intrinsic value, I'm happy to sell some of their stock and move on and redeploy that money into another stock or just to hold cash and wait until I think there's a better opportunity to own the stock. You said sell some. You don't bail on a company if they're losing money because there's another opportunity, do you? Yeah. I mean, I'll redeploy money into the best risk-adjusted return place I can put it, but I also have to wait the 
size of a position based on the expected return and the expected return over the short and medium term. If I'm in something I really like, but I don't think it's going to earn a great return over the short or medium term, but I think it'll earn a great return over the longer term, I might trim that position and deploy it into something that I think will have a shorter cycle time. My next question concerns the geopolitical events in the Middle East and or potential catastrophes. Now, we know that any talk involving anything in the Persian Gulf, anything involving Iran, has usually spiked the price of oil, and there's several entities geopolitically and sometimes financially that like that to happen because it inflates the price of oil and share prices and what have you. What are your thoughts with regard to what's happening or not happening in the Persian Gulf? I think it's important to take things into the context of the current situation and specifically the current supply situation for oil and the demand situation for oil. We're, we're at a, a point where supply and demand are matched very closely and it's the first time in, to my knowledge, in almost 100 years where there isn't excess supply. Since the existence of OPEC, there has always been this ability of OPEC to supply more oil than they were currently supplying. Uh, there was this excess capacity, which at one point was measured in the tens of millions of barrels a day of production or potential production that was not being produced. That excess capacity is almost all gone. And many cynics have said that it's completely gone. They don't believe the Saudi Arabian production potential numbers. I'm not all the way over the fence on that. It's unclear. I haven't done enough work to really know exactly how much production potential there is still in Saudi Arabia. But it does seem, based on how the oil prices are reacting and based on stockpiles around the world, it does seem and inventories around the world, it does seem like supply and demand are, are tightly balanced right now. And any slight movement in the economy down is bringing oil prices down a lot. And any slight movement up in the economy is bringing prices up a lot. And any threat to supply is affecting prices a lot. Like last year with Libya, Libya doesn't even produce that much oil. But there being a civil war in Libya and the production getting cut off, they represented, I don't know, two or three or something percent of the total world production. And that moved the price of oil by somewhere between 10 and $20 a barrel. Was that so, good for your portfolio? Uh, yeah, it was. It was good for my portfolio. And that's one reason why people invest in my fund, and that's one reason why I'm investing in oil and gas, is I think, like I said, I think it's an investment space where there are tailwinds, where there is, you don't have to flap your wings quite as hard. There are things that are happening in the world that are beneficial and that are happening beyond the specific companies I'm investing in that are beneficial for those investments beyond just sort of their specific wells that they're drilling or the specific projects that they're engaging in. If the Gulf of Hormuz was blocked by Iran, even for a short period of time, it would have a dramatic effect on the price of oil. And it might be a short-term effect or it might be a medium-term effect. I mean, people might, governments might choose to limit the exports of oil from their countries. Argentina has been known to limit exports of a number of different things, and they have extremely punitive export tax that they've imposed recently on their oil production. And there are other countries that have histories of doing that. Russia has blocked wheat exports and other sorts of exports before and spiked those commodities, and Russia is the world's largest producer of oil, uh, not Saudi Arabia. So there are a lot of potential risks that would, could come along with an oil price spike that might actually keep the price of oil higher. And even with demand destruction, you could still see a, a higher price for a long period of time. Are you always selling into those markets? Not necessarily. I mean, it depends. If there was a combination of a geopolitical event and then um, some sort of tariff or export prohibition or restriction that 
turned a short-term spike into something that looked like it was going to be longer, I wouldn't necessarily sell. It would force me to, to go back through my different investments and reevaluate what I think their intrinsic value is. Likely, I would sell some, but I wouldn't necessarily have to sell just because the prices were going up. What kind of buying opportunities are you finding now with regard to oil and gas stocks? Anything interesting? I think some of them have overcorrected and they're now very cheap and very compelling, but at least you can understand that. The odder thing with oil and gas companies, particularly the small ones where, again, liquidity has exited, stocks are not very liquid and there aren't very many people paying attention to them, is you have companies who fundamentally change who are either going from being rapidly growing and creating a lot of value to drilling a series of of dry holes and bad wells, or on the flip side where you see companies discover tremendous resources, execute excellently on their business plans, raise capital in tough environments, redeploy the capital at high rates of return, and no one notices. Those are the opportunities that I'm focused on right now, and that's, I think, where far and away the best returns will come. Those are the types of companies I was investing in in early 2009 that earned ridiculously good returns, and I think that those types of investments will earn good returns here. Now, I'll talk about one company just to highlight sort of how extreme this valuation gap is and how much the market's missing. This company is called Gale Force Petroleum. It was a recap. It had been a public entity that had been around for a number of years uh, in another sector. It was overlevered. It was restructured and recapitalized as an oil and gas company in late 2009, early 2010. And it proceeded with a business model of buying underdeveloped old oil fields, redeveloping them to grow production, and then potentially drilling additional infill wells to grow production even more, and to do it in a very, very capital-efficient way and in a very low-risk way. The theory is if you go and buy a field for its fair value for its current production, and then you do anything to improve the production, you basically are creating every additional barrel you add, you create a lot of value. What they've managed to do over that period of time is grow their production from zero barrels a day to currently it's around 400 barrels a day of production. And if you look at the amount of money they've spent versus the amount of money you'd have to spend to go and buy 400 barrels a day of production, there's a tremendous difference in between the two. They're creating production for a quarter of the cost of what it would cost you if you went to actually go and buy that production uh, in the private asset market for oil production. And what's even more compelling is, so they have this track record where they've really efficiently and effectively deployed capital. They recently raised money and they deployed some of it into a new acquisition. They've said that they're going to get from their current level of production to at least 800 barrels a day by the end of the year and potentially 1,000, and no one seems to care. You know, The stock is up a little bit, but it's up on the growth that they've already achieved. It's not even pricing in the liquidation value of their current production. So it's remarkable. I mean, they basically, they've deployed, they've effectively executed on their business plan. They have tremendous growth ahead of them. The acquisition that they did, they won't have to raise capital at any point in the future. They have a, a large amount of availability on their revolver, and they'll be able to go and grow the company to 1,000 barrels a day maybe by the end of the year, and then grow to 2,000 barrels a day by the end of next year and do it in an extremely capital-efficient way, and no one seems to care. I mean, there were similar things in 2009, like Northern Oil and Gas, which had this great production ramp. They didn't need money. They had great assets. They could go and sell their assets for a multiple of what they were trading for, and they started executing on their plan, and no one cared. 
And eventually money came back into the market. People started investing in smaller cap stocks. And Northern Oil went from being a $50 million company to today it's, what, like a $1.4 billion company. Obviously, there was great execution there. But there's also great execution going on right now at Gale Force. And they're not even pricing in the value of the existing assets and the existing production. Forget the ability of the company to actually go through those fields and dramatically grow production. Well, where do you think the stock should be? Because I think, I don't know when you got in, but maybe you can tell us, as of last October, that the stock was at $0.09, cents and it's more than triple, so I say somebody cares. I bought my stock for $0.20 cents a share. Okay. I did a small private placement with a company, and then I bought additional stock in the open market, ranging from prices in between $0.16 cents a share, and I think the highest price I paid is $0.30 cents a share. In many ways, you've doubled. Yeah, I've done well so far, but what's been interesting interesting with it is that the stock price has lagged the value of just the existing production that they have. Okay. So with mining companies, you know, you go and you invest in a mine and it's all about the potential value in a sale. And so you have no production, no production, no production, and then a ton of production. And before you get to the ton of production, typically these junior mining companies go and if they're successful, they sell and they achieve a multiple times return on their investment. So Gilforce is kind of doing a similar thing where they're going and they're investing and they're building this potential value. No one's giving them any credit for the potential value, but the nice thing about oil companies is they have this existing production and this is ex existing cash flow. Gilforce isn't even, forget the potential value, they're not even getting credit for their existing production. They're getting a fraction of the credit. So when you, you did point out that the stock has gone up a lot. Well, over that period of time, they were able to show production growth from 150 barrels of oil a day to almost 400 barrels of oil a day today. Which reflects a 300% growth since October, correct? Correct, but it's not just about how much production it's grown, it's also saying, okay, so sure, it was trading at a discount then, it's trading at a similar discount now to the production, except now it has the track record where they can say, hey, we're capable of doing this. We're executing on our business plan. We have this ramp that we can continue to grow at. We're trading at a similar discount to our production. So give us credit, at least for our production, if not for the value that, that's there. So if they had 150 barrels of oil a day and they were trading for $10 million, and now they have 400 barrels a day and they're trading for $25 million. It's a similar discount. It's a similar amount you're paying per barrel of oil produced or barrel of oil equivalents, a little bit of its natural gas, like less than 20%. It's a similar discount to the production value. They've shown they're able to increase their production. They've said they're going to increase it. They said they're going to increase it last year and they followed through and they actually increased by right about their uh, targeted uh, production growth. So I think the market is lagging. I think it's very hard in this market for stocks to actually go up, especially for smaller cap stocks where there's less liquidity. I think people look at the chart and they say, oh, well, there must be some other stock where the price has gone down rather than up over the last two months and therefore I'm going to deploy my money there. They're not looking at the fundamentals of the company and saying, wow, this company is worth, let's say today, just that production is worth $40 million. $100,000 a flowing barrel, $40 million. The enterprise value right now is around twenty-five. So right now, if you just went and liquidated it, you stopped everything, you liquidated it, you'd get a, a double on your equity. The big dip was back in October, and you came in above that dip and mm -hmm. have done well. And you'll usually wait and see what, what happens. You don't come in on the dip. No, no, I, I mean, I try to. With these guys, actually, the, the story is that I knew the largest shareholder and they were telling me about how great this company was, but we were also involved in another transaction, and so I was focusing on that transaction and focusing on other stocks. What caught my attention with Gale Force was their ability to actually execute on their production growth. So I looked at them when they were producing 150 barrels a day, and this actually may be helpful with understanding why I like this so much and why it's more compelling here than it was when it was trading for 
you know, 10 cents or 12 cents. When I looked at it, they, they were producing 150 barrels a day. They hadn't disclosed any additional production. It didn't seem like they had done anything. They didn't have very many press releases. There just wasn't a lot going on. The stock was falling. And it was unclear. It was like, okay, well, they have this proved reserve value that their engineers have said that they have. And sure, they've grown their production from nothing to 150 barrels, but they've bought a lot of that. They, they hadn't shown that they were going to be able to deploy capital effectively. Well, since then, they've deployed capital very effectively. They went from 150 barrels last summer to 275 barrels by the end of last year to now my estimate is that they're producing 400. They haven't announced their recent production rate. The last production rate I think they announced was 325 barrels a day, and that was two months ago. But my understanding is based on the acquisition that they closed recently, plus some additional workovers that I estimate. I don't have any inside knowledge on this. Just my understanding of sort of how their production growth is working and sort of where they're going to get to by the end of the year, my estimate is they're producing about 400 barrels a day. So because they've been able to show that they can do it, and especially for a small company to be able to deploy capital very efficiently, it's extremely powerful. So I would argue that at the very least, the company should trade for the value of its proved reserves. Very least, it should trade for the value of the current production and the very easily turned on production. So that would be, at least as of their last reserve report, that would be $40 million. More likely, if you did a reserve report today, more likely their proof reserves would be more like 50 or $60 million. So somewhere in between the value just of the production, which would be around $40 million, and the value of the proof reserves, which was likely 50 or $60 million. The, the remarkable thing about oil and gas, and also with mining, people don't give a lot of credit to most of these companies for their ability to create value. So there's an equity value here beyond just the assets. And the fact that they've been able to grow production very cost-effectively means that as a business, there's probably more value there than just the value of their current production. If you give them a dollar, they've turned a dollar into four dollars repeatedly. There's a value in that business, obviously, and they're generating cash flow from their properties and redeploying that cash. So given their ability to earn very high returns on capital they deploy, I would argue that they should actually trade for a premium to their existing asset value, which you know won't happen probably at any point in the near future. It does happen with larger cap oil and gas stocks. I'm not holding my breath for Gilforce to trade to a premium to its net asset value, but at the very least I would expect that as they continue to execute on their business plan, not only will they continue to grow their market value as they grow production and maintain this sort of sixty or $70,000 per flowing barrel valuation, but I think they'll actually close the gap and I think they'll at the very least get to $100,000 per flowing barrel valuation, which would get you to, let's say, $100 million enterprise value by the end of the year or early next year when they get to that 1,000 barrel a day mark relative to the current market cap of around $20 million. I think that that'll be a very nice return for me. Well, let's say the stock were to trade at a dollar or a dollar twenty or a dollar fifty within the next three or four months if it were just to spike up. And we see spikes like this usually in, in other areas, quick spikes like that. What goes up fast should come down fast. Is that sustainable? I think what they would do, I obviously, I'm not the CEO and I'm not on their board, so it's not like I can tell you they'll do this for sure. What my bet of what they would do with that is they would go and use their equity as currency and buy more assets and do more with it. 
So it's actually possible. So there are companies that do this and have done this extremely effectively where they trade for a premium to their net asset value, or at least they get up to trading around their net asset value, and they use their equity as currency, and they build a lot of value. So with the track record it has during the last year, if you weren't in now, it's a more compelling story perhaps to get involved. You might accumulate more, or you might buy if you weren't in. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think it's more compelling now at 30 or 31 cents a share than it was at 12 cents a share. I might have touched nine, but I think the only shares that ever really traded near that low traded around 12, and the only real volume that there was was around sort of 14 or 15 cents. I think definitely compared to 14 or 15 cents uh, in October or whenever it was that that happened, yeah, I think it's much more compelling now than it was then. I think the combination, again, of higher production, so it's actually trading at a similar multiple to its production rate, and the track record of successful execution. They're a proven team. They've, it's worked. What they're doing is working. And instead of having the same degree of skepticism as displayed by the low valuation per flowing barrel, you'd think that the market at some point would start to recognize it. And over the last few months, it has begun to recognize it a little bit. But you know, what I'd like to see is that gap to close and for them to start to trade at you know $100,000 a flowing barrel. And potentially, I think, you know, again, I think there's a possibility they start to trade for more than that, both because of the management's proven ability to execute. And as an investor, you can look at them and say, okay, even if I didn't believe they can execute, what are they drilling? What kind of wells are they? What kind of production rates are they getting? What kind of workovers are they doing? How much money are they spending? And if you evaluated them agnostic to the potential or the capabilities of the management team and just looked at them from an asset perspective, you could actually give them some credit for some of the production they're going to be bringing on in the next few months. And these are the kinds of opportunities you look for in an otherwise sluggish market. Yeah. I mean, I think this is how I'm going to make a lot of money this year. I think specifically Gale Force. I think Gale Force is going to make me a lot of money. And I think that they're going to do it even if the market sucks. And honestly, even if the market crashes, and even if oil prices uh, and oil prices go down a lot, and even if oil company stocks go down, I think Gilforce has the potential to actually outperform this year, both relatively and absolutely. I think the stock could still go up because if you think about it, let's say they get to a thousand barrels a day by the end of the year. You know, they're saying eight hundred. I think they'll they'll be able to get to a thousand. Let's say they get to a thousand barrels a day by the end of the year. If they get to 1,000 barrels a day and they stay at their current 31 cents a share, it's insane. They'd be trading for $20,000 a flowing barrel. And if you add the debt that they'd have to incur, maybe it'd be $30,000 a flowing barrel on an enterprise value basis. This would be for a company that had tripled its production that year. It's insane. There's no way I, I would be shocked if they trade at that valuation at that production level. And I think that it's very likely they'll be able to achieve that production level. So that's, that's my thesis. I mean, it's simple. Like, if I didn't own it, I'd go and buy a bunch of it. Right now, it's my largest position by far. So I'm, I'm not buying any just because it would be irresponsible of me to buy any more. And, uh, you know, if it traded down a lot, I'd probably go and sell some stuff and buy even more. So all of your eggs are not exactly in one basket? No. All of my eggs are not in one basket, but this is the largest position that I've ever had in my fund over the last couple of years that I've been running it, and then it's the largest position that I've ever had as an investment professional. Well, you've stated a few times that you are a shareholder. I've sure enjoyed hearing about Gale Force and everything else we've talked about today, Josh. Thank you very much. Thanks for the time. I've been speaking today with Joshua Young, Portfolio Manager of Young Capital Management in our Los Angeles studios. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. In this segment, join me for a conversation with one of my most esteemed peers in the arena of resource sector broadcasting, Al Corlin of the Corlin Economic Report. 
Mr. Corlin has been involved in the financial community since 1967 when he received his Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Washington with a dual major in economics and Russian literature. He went on to receive his Master's in Business Administration degree with an emphasis on finance and international trade from the University of Puget Sound in 1978. His company, A.B. Corlin and Associates, specializes in completing the regulatory work that needs to be done in order for Canadian mining industries to be traded in the United States on major exchanges. Al also spends a considerable amount of time at investment conferences throughout North America, where I always visit with him. His website is kereport.com. That's kereport.com. And he was kind enough to have me on his program recently. Here's that segment with Al Corlin. You know, Ellis, you and I are both big believers in people being as informed as they possibly can uh, whenever they make an investment decision, or for that matter, whenever they make a decision on virtually anything in life. I mean, you want to get all of the input that you can. And the one thing that I think that we do together that is very, very beneficial, certainly for investors and other folks, is that we provide information on both of our programs and on both of our sites that I think you never can get too much information. And by by being able to come to sources like the Ellis Martin Report and the KE Report, folks are able to, you know, really truly see the movie on the biggest possible screen that they can be looking at. And, and that's nothing but beneficial, in my opinion. Well, we urge our combined audiences, Al, to do as much research as possible. And there's plenty of places to go for that research on the Internet, beginning with our website, but not necessarily ending there. And as much information as you can possibly absorb at this time, it's still a tough place to make a decision whether or not to get in or get out or have the patience to see this market through until it turns around. Yeah, I would have to agree 100%. You know, I have to tell you, since you and I visited in Vancouver at the, at the uh, World Investment Conference up there, hasn't this been a strange precious metals market? You know, it's the Friday before the show, we were up over $60 an ounce vis-a-vis -vis gold. This past week, we've seen some incredibly dramatic decreases in the price in very, very short periods of time. You know, you really have to wonder if, you know, the old somebody's knocking it down theory doesn't have a whole bunch of credence. I don't know, man. Well, it's interesting. It's getting knocked down during a, a time period where everyone's waiting to see if there's going to be a quantitative easing, uh, mm -hmm. QE3, so to speak. Uh, how much of this is planned, this beatdown of the market, more or less, so that when QE happens, as it inevitably will, how far will the gold market take off if it, in fact, does? And one more point before you respond, Al, we're still up about $75 or so, 50 to $75 or so above what the price of gold was last year at this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I realize that. You know, in terms of the QE question, I've talked about this numerous times on the Corland Economics Report, and i got to tell you, man, I am firmly convinced that vis-a-vis -vis QE that it's been going on for a long time, just under a different format. I mean, the government is still putting money into the um, the system. I'm looking at a chart right now. It's not quite 75 bucks. It's 45.50 as of today, but you're still looking at a, almost a 3% increase from a year ago, and the drop as we're recording this thing was only 1.87%. So there's just a whole bunch of backfilling and treading water going on, in my opinion. You know what's frightening, and not necessarily to me, but the, the companies that are these junior mining companies mm -hmm. especially is, while the price of, of gold may still be $50 above what it is last year, what it was last year, we may come down and test 1400 Who knows? Mm -hmm. Is that half of these junior mining companies are just dead in the water. They have no money. 
they can't raise money. And as our mutual uh, associate, Rick Rule, would say, they're, they're probably going to be gone in six months. Rick's comment, I thought, was he wasn't quite as dire as Doug Casey was in his presentation. But, you know, Rick brings up a very, very good point, and that is you can't really throw a dart you know, at a list of companies and necessarily come up with anything that makes sense because really only somewhere between 5 and 15% of the companies really, really are fundamentally sound. And and the rest of them, you know, it's it's a, just the nature of the mining industry. The rest of them are kind of hopes and prayers. Well, how can you make an informed decision right now as, as our audience is, is having to deal with every day? You and I, at least for the most part, get to chat with some of these companies. We get to see the excitement or the stress or the sweat, Mm -hmm. if it's there or not. Uh, Our listeners just blindly heading out there on the Internet trying to cipher through news releases, they're hard-pressed to do that. Having done, as you know, reporting to the Securities and Exchange Commission for mining companies for 30 years, you know, I developed a pretty interesting interesting handle on, on how to do effective due diligence on the companies. And I have to say, I have gotten to the point where... In my opinion, the most important factor in looking at these companies boils down to one simple thing, and that's called the management. I mean, yes, the asset is very important. Yes, having having cash in the bank, and well, there's another asset, but, you know, having having adequate capital is very important. But, you know, i got to tell you, man, in my opinion, it all boils down to the person driving the tractor, so to speak. There are people you just, they have been successful in the past, and they're going to continue to be successful. There are other people who've just plodded along and never really done much. Those are probably the kind of deals you don't want to invest in. Well, while we have a few minutes left here, Al, who are some of the companies, or you know, give me one or two companies that you're quite fond of right now, where the management is able to sit it out more or less and keep doing the work they're doing on the ground, and they've got a decent amount of money in the bank. The three companies that come to mind right now that I think can definitely, without a doubt, weather the storm would be for sure New Zealand Energy. That company has done very, very well. Timmins Gold, you know, I've been following Timmins Gold since I bought stock at 40 cents a share a couple, three years ago. They've got a very, very solid situation. And then then I have to say that another one that I know is going to be, for lack of better terms, weathering the storm, you know, and this is not investment advice because I'm not a registered investment advisor by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, another one at this point in time would be Corvus Gold. I mean, these companies have all done very, very well. The other companies that we follow and the other companies that are on our website are companies that I, you know, I certainly wouldn't rule them out either. How about you? Give us two or three. Well, I like a company called, that I know you're familiar with, Silvercrest. Mm-hmm. They weathered the storm very, very nicely with their producing silver and gold mine in Mexico. I also like East Main Resources. Sure. a uh, sponsor and client of our program for mm-hmm. about... Uh, 10, 12 years right now. Right. In the bank, solid management, they just keep exploring no matter what the market is doing. Yeah, we know Kathy and Dawn really, really well, and they are just really decent, hardworking, well-qualified people. Speaking of uh, Timmins and the area that they're uh, mining in in Mexico, and by all means, I'm a, I'm a journalist, I'm a broadcaster, I make no claim to know anything about anything mm-hmm. involving the area of, of, of finance, but uh, there's a company I invested in a few days ago in the same area that Timmins is, is uh, NWM Mining, and that's mm-hmm. all I'm going to say. I'm a shareholder. You know, the three companies that I mentioned, uh, Corvus, New Zealand Energy, and, uh, and Timmins, I am an investor in those companies also, and I know that you and I are both 
you know, we both, whenever we're investing in a situation that we're talking about, we fully disclose that to our audience. Ellis, we're going to get together like this as often as we can. I appreciate your time, my friend. And I need to add that I'm also a shareholder with East Main Resources. Al, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for having me on the program. I've been speaking with Al Corlin of the Corlin Report on the web as KERreport.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. In this segment, I'm visiting with Dr. Don Robinson, president of East Main Resources, trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. East Main is an active explorer in eastern Canada with an ongoing partnership with major gold producer Goldcorp. Fifty percent of this year's drilling will be focused on increasing the size of high-grade measured and indicated gold resources in the 450 and 850 west zones of East Main's Eau Claire project, which may be amenable to extraction by open-pit methods. Do you think we're nearing a bottom? Well, some of the evidence certainly points to it. If you look at every chart of all the seniors, intermediates, juniors, etc., across the board, they've all been taking a shellacking, as we say in Canada. But for the first time this morning, we saw, even though gold was off and red, the seniors started off red and then bounced green pretty heartily. So, you know, perhaps this is the sign where we'll look back in the mirror and say, well, that was it and we missed it. But I think some positive should be taken out of that. Does the price of gold, whether it's bullion or share prices, have anything to do with exploration or production with regard to a company like East Main? Well, Barry Cook, one of the famous analysts, used to say, you know, the, the juniors should not be influenced as much by the price of gold because we're not producing gold. However, it is a retained enterprise value in the ground, so I guess there's clearly a relationship, but there's a little bit of a indirect relationship, really, at the end of the day. You have a joint venture on one of your properties with Goldcorp. They're the largest investor in your company. You're developing your assets as a possible takeover candidate down the road. We are dealing with a project that is one of 13 in North America in terms of size and grade, and we're making it bigger. So Clearwater is a, in a unique circumstance as far as the project is concerned and we have a very high grade open pit resource and there's ample evidence that we can make it bigger and fortunately we have a treasury in which we can do it and the other thing that we have at our disposal is that we have a Quebec advantage and that is even with depressed share prices we are able to get a premium on any placements that we do because we're working in Quebec and that just means you can stretch the dollars a lot farther. This year, we are doing 50,000 meters of drilling for a budget of $10 million. There's companies out there that are doing comparable drill programs at four times the price. And that's where we have the Quebec advantage. And you're in an area of Quebec that's comparable to what the Timmins Gold Camp was years ago. The reason we're there in the first place is geology. And the geology that we're dealing with is a mirror image of what we've seen time and time again in these famous camps. The only difference was when we started, you had to fly for a few hundred miles in order to get to the project area. Now you can drive to it. Infrastructure is what will make the difference on any mining project. And in our case, we have a permanent road that comes right to the doorstep of the project, and we're within several miles of the cheapest power in the world. When we're ready, when that project gets to the point where it's ready to develop, the infrastructure's already in place. In a cooperative market, what would really drive your share price north? Well, I think no matter what the end game 
price point is, is that as long as you can keep ahead of the curve, keep your project advancing and keep your treasury topped up at a premium, those things are things that are in your control and the rest of it will take care of itself. So this is how you managed to survive all these years. In fact, this is what Macquarie brought up in terms of when they introduced the different companies at this conference making the grade. They made a specific point of our company in terms of longevity, sort of you know, setting the bar very high and being able to last for quite some period of time and have stamina, given the prevailing headwinds that we've seen time and time again. The reason we've been able to do that is we've taken advantage of circumstances as they present themselves, such as being able to acquire management of your project when gold price is a tenth of what it is now. That's a little fortuitous, and it's a lot fortuitous on our behalf, but each step of the way, we've been able to take advantage of the circumstances. We were able to buy the royalty from the flagship last year outright, and so it's sort of taking advantage of what the current market conditions are enabling you. This is a time where there are acquisition opportunities in the marketplace, with other juniors faltering. Are you looking at any possible acquisitions for East Main? Well, actually, turn the table. The reverse is happening. Companies are screening projects that are out there, and just like we did, a number of projects filter to the top, either in terms of grade or in terms of growth, in terms of size, in terms of location. That's where our project is looking particularly attractive relative to the pack out there. In the meantime, what we're going to do is try to make it more attractive by drilling 50,000 meters. Your vision, Don, is to continuously bring value to the company. By drilling. Well, Don, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Thank you very much, Alf. I've been speaking with Dr. Don Robinson, president of East Main Resources, a gold exploration company trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com. For more information, visit our website, ellismartreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Eric Fear, the Chief Operating Officer of Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest Mines trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, now the OTCQX, as STBZF. Mr. Fear has over 25 years of international experience in a senior capacity, including exploration, acquisition, development, and production of numerous mining projects in Chile, Brazil, Honduras, Mexico, and Peru. He previously served as chief geologist with Pegasus Gold. He was a senior engineer and manager with Newmont Mining and project manager with Eldorado Gold Corp. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, B.C. Silvercrest's flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located 150 kilometers northeast of Hermosillo in the state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. A three-year expansion plan is underway to double metals production at the Santa Elena mine, and exploration programs are rapidly advancing the definition of a large polymetallic deposit at the La Jolla property in Durango State, Mexico. Eric, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having us back on the air, Ellis. It's always an opportunity to get the story out. Well, you've got quite a story, and you've had quite a story for a significant amount of time. I'm just looking over your latest news release, and for quarter one of 2012, silver production is up 108%, and gold ounces are up 198%. 
That's outstanding. Yeah, that's correct, Ellis. Part of it is that we're comparing the quarter of 2011 with the current quarter. In the quarter of 2011, we were in the ramp-up phase, so we weren't at full production. So that's part of the bump-up. The other part of the bump-up and having such a significant change in percent is that we're getting better recoveries, we're getting better throughput through our crusher at the mine site, and all of that wraps up into more ounces and more cash flow for the company. So you're saying a lot of it is about the tools? It's about the tools and, and the people. A lot of it rolls back to a lot of the planning, strategic planning. You know, you got to have smart people on the ground and boots on the ground to get this work done. I give a big hand to our, our production team that's in Mexico. Great people, great people to work with. The local people that we're using in Mexico are top-notch people. We've taken people that have been working out on, on the ranching side a year ago and trained them up, and they're doing an excellent job. It all means savings to us and uh, more cash flow and opportunities for our shareholders and potential shareholders. One of the things mining companies come across, especially if they're going into production or even the development stage or exploration stage, is finding the right personnel in the area. And you're saying that you're just training locals and putting them to work. I implemented a program before we started construction of 70% local hire local being within about 35 kilometers of the mine site, and we're at that now. So we actually got guys that are are local guys that are at the foreman level, superintendent level, that are running the crushers, that are running the plant, that are working in the pit, and they really appreciate the job. It's a great opportunity for the community. we got great community support. One other thing that Santa Elena, which is our flagship for Silvercrest, uh, it's the flagship mine, is that it's a very attractive area. So you're close to Hermosillo, which has great infrastructure, an international airport, over a million people, and it's a very attractive place to work because the alternative is to work up in the Sahara Madre. You're on rotation. You don't get to see your families. So we get uh, quite a few people that are interested in coming to Santa Elena and work for us because of that. In addition to the production that you have going on and expanding that production capability, what about further exploration and stepping out the resource itself at Santa Elena? What's happening in that direction? We got a twofold plan for this year. One is to expand the resources at Santa Elena, and I'm shooting for a 50% to 100% increase in our underground resources. We've started up a drilling program, so look forward to those news releases coming up over the next several months. Beyond Santa Elena and expanding that resource, with success of expanding that resource, it adds mine life, adds more job security, adds more cash flow to the company and, and to its shareholders. Beyond Santa Elena, we uh, have a major discovery in the state of Durango. Keep in mind that Santa Elena is in the state of Sonora, so there's quite a bit of a distance between the, the two sites. So that major discovery is called La Jolla. We just did our first NI43-101 resource in January, over 100 million ounces silver equivalent, about 60% of that silver, 30% copper, and 10% on the gold side. 
so there's great opportunities. We continue to drill there. We've got an 80-hole program that's underway, and we're shooting for a double on that resource toward the end of this year, too. We'll see if we're successful or not. The opportunity's there. It's a big system. It's a major discovery. Great opportunity for the company to grow in that direction. I would see Silvercrest in two to three years of being a mid-tier silver-gold producer and bringing, with success, bringing La Jolla online. Uh, you know, it's, it's five years out. you got to get through all of your studies. But there is a, a conceptual business plan in place right now to look at the growth of the company. What kind of mine life are we looking at? Before the expansion plan, it was six years. The expansion plan at Santa Elena is adding another five years. So you're 10 to 11 years with success and getting 50% to 100% more resources underground. You're probably adding another two to three years on that life. So I think that Santa Elena, at the end of the day, with metal prices being where they're at, is a major project over the next 10 to 15 years. Well, you're generating revenue through production. Silver is being used as a speculative investment and as an industrial metal. We don't see the need for silver abating at all for the foreseeable future, whether it's the bullion itself or producing public company like yours. I agree with you. I mean, silver, 50% of it's used on the commodities side and 50% is industrial. So there is a balance there depending on global uh, economics and what's going on. But uh, we're very bullish on silver. Any plans beyond what we've discussed for the next two years? We're always looking at other projects. Uh, we're in a unique position right now, Ellis, that we do have a strong cash flow, although some of it's being put towards our expansion plan. We look at two to three acquisitions a month right now. I have an acquisitions team in Mexico. We love Mexico. We don't have any problems with the security there. There's great opportunities. I've previously worked in Nevada. Mexico is like Nevada 30 to 40 years ago. I mean, you can walk over, and we've just shown it. La Jolla a year ago had nothing, and one year later, it's a major discovery. So if I can go out in the field and walk over something and make a major discovery within the last year, you know that there's got to be tremendous opportunity, and we want to capture that opportunity. We don't want to overdo it because we do have a limited amount of people and a limited amount of funds, but you definitely don't want to pass up an opportunity, and we continue to look for those. And we have the management team and the qualifications to do that. Speaking of your management team, the man with a great vision, one of the founders of the company, CEO Scott Drever, has been a quiet and strong presence. Oh, definitely. And, and he will continue to be. I mean, Scott and I, we bat around business ideas every day. He's a great, stable force in moving this company forward. There was... Actually, three of us founders, myself, Scott, and Barney Magnuson of Silvercrest. Beyond that uh, senior management level, there's uh, some great potential just below us. Brent McFarlane, Jed Thomas, uh, Salvador Aguayo. These are all VP positions that are critical to the growth of this company, and they got a lot of great experience and good people. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for joining me on the program, and thanks for the update. I look forward to speaking with you again. Okay, thank you uh, once again for the opportunity, Alice. I've been chatting with Eric Fear, Chief Operating Officer for Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and on the OTCQX as STVZF. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, 
ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for an impromptu spur-of-the-moment interview with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is silver-investor.com. Has the bottom come and gone in this market? Boy, it sure looks like it to me, Ellis, at least on the equity side. We've seen very low prices in the mining stocks across the board. Basis, the GDX and the other indexes, but primarily that one. Huge volume a few days ago. And usually those kind of volume increases are evidence of short covering. There's been a lot of professional money out there on the short side in these mining equities particularly, as well as the metal. When they see the opportunity, they will cover their positions, and that has taken place. I'm sure there's probably some more short covering to do, but I think the bottom is in for the mining equities. As far as the metals are concerned, it's quite possible that the bottom is in as well. I've been saying to our members and also in the public domain that I thought that we'd see the bottom in June, and I'm not going to change that yet, but I think we're close enough to a bottom for all practical purposes. Silver has gone in the $26 level two times, both times extremely briefly, what I refer to as a spike low. It comes right back up. There's only a few trades that are in that very area, and then it pops up and continues on up and starts building a base at a higher price. Are you bullish about the rest of the year? I am. You know, Normally, the metals bottom in the summer months, normally August. Uh, I think, again, it could be you know May or June. I'm kind of still biased toward June based on the work that I do. But regardless, this is close enough to the final bottom as far as I'm concerned. And the fundamentals for the metals have never been better. I mean, there's so many things going on in the global financial system and a global political environment that it just begs people to take a hard look at the metals. Some of the stocks that have fallen back in my portfolio in the last few months have dropped back as much as 50%. Should we be considering buying into stocks we already own that have been depressed as well as looking for new opportunities? Well, I've been seeing for months that their stocks are undervalued and they can become more undervalued. And to buy in and plan to buy in, you know, through the summers. Having said that, one of the ones that's more speculative in the portfolio is actually here in town. I've known them for a long time. Been in the stock once, made about 800% on it, got back in it. It's underwater from where we recommended it again, but nonetheless, that stock was up like 25% yesterday. I uh, really think, uh, again, that this is the time to not be fearful. It's the time to be pretty aggressive and get into these. What do you buy? That's an individual choice again. I mean, the Morgan Report focuses on money, metals, and mining. We certainly advocate everyone starting their metals portfolio physical metal first. But once that's done, then you can diversify into the mining companies, and we stress really depending on the person, but primarily getting the top-tier cash-rich unhedged mining companies as the top tier, and then the uh, mid-tier growth companies, and then just bet a little to win a lot in the speculative side of the portfolios. How does one follow you? Now, there's lots of ways these days, as you know, with all the social media. I don't do them all, but I have a Twitter account. The Twitter account is SilverGuru22. I do link articles that I read daily, and these are articles that I've read and vetted that I think are important to stay attuned to the precious metals in the overall global economies. I also have a YouTube channel. A lot of time, effort, and money as far as the camera action that goes into it. These Some are actually professionally done. Most aren't. Most are just YouTube quality, but they're all pertinent to keeping everyone abreast, and that channel on YouTube is Silver Guru. And then lastly, the website itself is themorganreport.com, all one word, themorganreport.com. You go there and you can get on our free e-letter, which is weekly on the weekend, or if you are serious about these markets, you can look at three different levels of paid services. That's in the members-only 
side of the website, and there are three videos that actually outline exactly what you're going to get. Nowhere in this interview do I sense any negativity. Well, the market's been up for two days. You know, when I bought at the bottom, again, if this is the bottom, I feel pretty good. If it's not, I still feel good. I do believe strongly, again, that over the longer term, you're going to look back at buying silver under 30 or gold under 1600 and I've been consistently saying that for several months now to buy in there. And a lot of people are very smart in this industry, and few of them have been kind of advocating that, you know, these metals are ready for launch, and they're going to go up and all this. You know, I've stayed my ground as usual and said, you know, I don't see it that way. I think we have more consolidation, a sideways to downtrending market. And that alone, in my book, is worth something. I'm not trying to sound like I'm better than or no more than or anything else, but I do want to make clear that I don't let much influence me. In other words, my work is my work, and I stick by it, you know, win, lose, or draw. Because, you know, people that perhaps were listening to some free information from someone else might have got in at, let's say, much higher prices and not had any cash left to take care of the opportunity that exists today. I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, kids, invest at your own risk. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.